Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy, and after years working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out there on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life, behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Courtney Jewell for a discussion on processing what it means to be on the front lines in the midst of this pandemic. For those of you who don't know about Courtney, she's an ICU nurse in Calgary. You may have heard about her on the news thanks to a social media post she wrote that went viral and was picked up by Global News and other Canadian news sources back in the fall. I stumbled across the Global Online News write-up about her post a couple of months ago and the post that she wrote. It struck me as a piece of processing the many layers of this pandemic experience, the frustration, disappointment, and overwhelm, along with the courage, willingness, and heart for those on the front lines of this thing. Let me read you what she wrote. Quote, I have been absolutely disgusted by the comments made by fellow Albertans on Facebook posts and news articles. These horrific internet trolls are spreading misinformation and baseless conspiracy theories about COVID-19 in our province. These awful people hiding behind their computers are accusing nurses and doctors and data analysts of inflating the numbers, lying about the overwhelmed state of our hospitals, trying to fearmonger, or even trying to take advantage of all the overtime pay. It's gross, and I think this is what I want to say to every terrible, ignorant person out there who has been changing my perception of humanity. We will still be there for you. Despite all the crap you're spreading online, when you come in to emerge with your eyes bulging out of your head because you can't breathe, we'll take care of you. Even at great risk to our own health, we will do everything we can to help you oxygenate better as COVID starts to ravage your lungs. And when you deteriorate, we will sedate you, intubate, put a breathing tube in, and transfer you to one of the excellent ICUs we have across this province. Even though you've been spreading on Facebook that these critical care areas are empty and full of lazy staff that just want to collect overtime pay, we will care for you. We will carefully flip you onto your belly, prone positioning, so that your lungs can have a better chance to oxygenate. We will chemically paralyze you, but be nice enough to make sure that you are well sedated so that you're not awake, paralyzed, and scared. We will call your terrified and worried family members to tell them that we are doing everything we can to save your life. When you go into acute renal failure, we will put you on CRRT and become your kidneys for you. As the virus overtakes your body, we will support your blood pressure, carefully titrating life-saving medications so that you don't suffer a cardiac arrest. 
We will bathe you, clean your mouth, and make sure to lubricate your eyeballs every two hours. I know you think we are just lazy and bored, but we'll still do all this for you. We will treat you with respect and dignity and compassion because that's what we do. No matter what you've said, what you have done, we will care for you because that's just who we are. We are not heroes, but simply people with compassion and who have a desire to help. We don't need to be attacked right now. And you know who else we care for? We will care for your older brother who had a heart attack last night and your son who was drinking and driving and smashed into a pole. We will care for your niece who had her first baby and then suffered a massive postpartum hemorrhage and your cousin who had a mental health crisis and poured gasoline over himself and lit himself on fire. Your mom who had a massive cancer surgery and your uncle who fell down the stairs and is now a quadriplegic. Because despite what you're telling everyone online, we are full of these patients as well. So, my dear ignorant, misinformed internet troll, even though you tried to take me down, make me lose my faith in humanity, I've decided that you won't win. And when the reality of this crisis hits you in the face or destroys the health of someone you love, we'll be there for you. I will stop reading the comment sections and continue to teach my kids that when there is a crisis, look for the helpers. And of course, love thy neighbor. So much love to my brothers and sisters fighting in ICUs across the province, especially to the staff at the Peter Lougheed here in Calgary. We at the Foothills ICU are thinking of you guys. End quote. Welcome, Courtney, and thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks, Lindsay. I kind of thought we could just start off by talking a little bit about your background. So what led into you becoming an ICU nurse and how long have you been doing this kind of work? Yeah, so I have been a nurse uh, for in the ICU for 14 years. Uh, I graduated from University of Calgary here in 2005. And um, I kind of always knew I wanted to be well, I found out I wanted to be a nurse when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a, a horrific teenage experience, but kind of led me to where I am today. I, um, my great aunt, who I was quite close with, when I was 14, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anyone who's gone through that kind of diagnosis, it's a horrible experience to see someone you love uh, deteriorate like that. But through that experience, I really learned a lot about myself and my ability to be a caregiver. And so at the age of 14, I was like doing things to physically help ease her pain and suffering. Um, And that experience in and of itself, learning about, you know, end of life care and dignity and dying and um, critical illness like that. I think really led me to want to pursue nursing as a profession uh, once I was out of high school. Right. Wow. That would be such a shaping experience mm-hmm, and really informative about like the nature of who you are and how that aligns to the work that you've now selected to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I just, I really learned a lot about being on the family side of things. And I think that that has really aided in my career as an ICU nurse, where um, I can put myself in the shoes of that family, that scared family, not knowing quite what's going on Mm -hmm. and being able to 
uh, not know everything, obviously, but to be on the inside track of healthcare and help. Ultimately, I wanted to help people on their worst day. And I think that's why um, critical care really spoke to me because I could, I can ease that very foreign environment, that very scary environment of the ICU where there is constant alarms and beeps and buzzing and uh, a family member that doesn't quite look like themselves. And Mm -hmm. I can try and help help those family members uh, and the patient themselves on their very worst day. And that's, yeah. that's what I love about critical care. Totally. Well, and I, I think one of the things I found interesting in working with a, and knowing a lot of critical care nurses is that you really have more than one patient, right? Like you have this patient who's the person in the bed that you're serving, but their family is kind of its own unique aspect of the patient. And it's a, a level of the work that I think doesn't happen in quite the same way in so many other types of roles within health. Absolutely. I think even just um, with the ICU, a lot of times our patients are intubated and sedated. And mm-hmm. so you get to know the family members um, quite well. And then they they tell you about who their loved one is. And so... Right as you're caring for that person who can't speak for themselves, their families really speak for them. And so I think family is such an important element when it comes to ICU. Of course. Yeah, for sure. So pre-pandemic, what was it that you loved most about your work and what did that look like before the pandemic hit? So we are a, where I work is a level one trauma center. So we see everything. We see not only like the surgical complications or things going wrong, septic patients who get really, really sick. Um, We also get every level of trauma that comes through, which is such a time of crisis uh, for families and for the patient themselves. So I really liked uh, being in ICU pre-pandemic was that when I came to work, I didn't quite know what type of patient I was going to have. But um, knowing that in our ICU, we have amazing teams and we, we work closely with the physicians and the respiratory therapists and we work as a team and we kind of take on whatever comes our way, which yeah. I, I love that aspect of it, of that um, team atmosphere and always feeling supported. Um, So I really love that element. And honestly, a big part of, for me that I've already mentioned is just the family care. So Mm pre-pandemic, I I really, because I've been a family member of someone who's critically ill, um, I really like to be able to take those family members under my wing and, and walk them through and try and let them know a big part of my nursing is to let family members know, I've got your loved one you know, Mm -hmm. I've got them. This is how, this is what I'm doing. Like I try and explain whenever I'm doing nursing care to their loved one, this is why we're doing what we're doing. You know, this is, um, you know, if these alarms go off, don't be concerned, don't be concerned unless you see me be concerned, you know, and, um, in our ICU, we really encourage family centered care. So we want them to be around for the daily rounds on patients and to know kind of what the plan is and, that sort of thing. So 
pre-pandemic, that was a really important piece of what we do and how we care for people. Right. And we're going to talk about how that's changed in a minute. But before we do that, the other piece I'm really curious about is pre-pandemic, what were some of the struggles, frustrations, challenges of the work that you were doing? Um, like, I mean, you're coming along people on their worst day, but what is a hard day for you in the midst mm -hmm. of that? <laughs> totally. You know, I have always said, um, I think anyone who works in critical care and possibly in nursing, because you give so much of yourself, I think we all struggle with PTSD. I think you can't see the things that we see, um, especially in the ICU or nurses that work in emergency and not take some of that home with you. So yeah. that was a really, that's been a struggle of my entire career is watching young people die and then mm. not being able to, uh, like, how do you not take that home? How, uh, there have been many a car ride home where I have just bawled my eyes out all the way home. So yeah. I think a big part, even pre-pandemic and even more so now has just been that mental health aspect for those, you know, those people who are on the front line. And I don't know if people realized that before the pandemic, what nurses saw, what mm -hmm. we experience on the job site on a daily basis. I love being an ICU nurse. I am very proud to be an ICU nurse, but it has affected me for sure in a multitude of ways with struggling with anxiety, seeing, seeing the worst of the worst and, and not thinking that that's going to happen to me or my family. You know what I mean? Like I totally, I, definitely struggled with with anxiety throughout my 14 years being in there because yeah. you know what we see it's not like working at Starbucks it is it's crazy sometimes <laughs> yeah well and it's I mean one of the things I often say to people about you know any amount of frontline work really is that no one comes out unscathed like you can't do Absolutely. the work and do it well and not be impacted by it. And I think the people who somehow seem like they're impacted by it just have a way better capacity to mask their right. impact, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting too, when I was new in the ICU, and I mean, even still now, there are, and I think this is in every area of nursing, there are giants in your mind. So when mm -hmm. I started in the ICU, there's those hardened ICU nurses who have been there forever. Yeah. And there was this degree of thinking, well, look at them, these giants in my mind who were so good at their jobs. They've been here forever and they're fine. So I'm, I should be fine. Like it was almost that sense of guilt of like, why are you struggling so badly with this? Look at, look at these people who you admire so much who have been in the ICU forever. They're okay. So you should be okay. And that was a really big hurdle for me to get over because I was struggling so bad with anxiety and not coping well, but I had to just shove it down because mm. those people looked okay. But like you say, I just think, A, maybe they have better coping mechanisms and they've been there so long that they um, know how to handle their stress and anxiety or they mask it. 
right? Like yeah. they, they do, they, they maybe deal with it in other ways that might not be so healthy, you know? So yeah, I think that was a really big turning point for me to recognize, no, I struggle with this and that's okay. Yeah. And even speaking with coworkers and saying, cause now that I've been there for so long saying, oh man, I really struggle with anxiety. Like my husband has to check in because if he doesn't and I can't get a hold of him, I think he's dead in a ditch. Like I totally had a car accident. So um, it's interesting when you see those younger nurses say, really? (laughs) Right. Like you're the giant in their mind. Yeah. And they're like, oh my word. Like, yes, that's exactly how I feel. And then I don't know, maybe it's just something where, we need to speak more about this. Yeah. Well, I think that's been kind of culturally a thing for so many frontline systems is that there's no room to complain. Like there's no, there's no help anyway (laughs) in, in many of them. That's maybe not entirely true anymore in the same degree, but you know, from a looking back perspective, there has been so little help to make it any different So you kind of learn really quickly, I think, to just shut up and do the job or get out because those are the choices it feels like, right? Yeah. And even 10 years ago, we weren't having these conversations about mental health supports that we are now. And that was just 10 years ago. And it was just like, well, deal with it and move on because everybody else is. So right. Well, and it's that piece, right? Of like, then they stay giants in your mind. And then you're the one who's somehow failing at it and not good enough. When in reality, like, again, no one is coming out unscathed. We're just not talking about it. So if we don't normalize it, we end up burning people out, not because of just the stuff they're seeing and doing and interacting with, but because we're failing to give them that normalization that says, it's not just a you thing. This is really like this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's tricky too, because I, I, I love that piece you said a little bit ago about, you know, like people don't really get even pre-pandemic what nurses, particularly in the ICU, do and see, like they can't really appreciate it. And it's kind of this funny mixture of like, it would be really great if they did get it because maybe they would get it, but yeah. you would also kind of hope that no one in your life would ever actually get it because that would yeah. mean they would have to have lived it sufficiently to get it. So it's like this double-edged sword. It's so true. Absolutely. Yep. So since the pandemic, how have some of these pieces about what you've loved in your work and what's been challenging in your work, how have those shifted this past year? Yeah, I have to say that this past year has probably been one of the most challenging of my career. Like the last, the last 10 months, there's been so many, I don't know, it just, it hasn't felt like regular life. It's felt <laughs> like a war zone and oh man, there's so many different elements of it. One big piece was the lack of family, right? Yeah, All of a sudden visitation policies changed because we were trying to protect our own staff, which I think is appropriate, but families weren't allowed in. Mm -hmm. So some teenage girl gets in a massive car accident and her family can't be at the bedside. How do we, how do we organize that in our own brains? It, it was awful. Like it was a, yeah, it was a horrific time of 
family members struggling so badly for information for, and we didn't quite at the beginning of this have the technology. Now we have like iPads and we're setting up video chats and Zoom calls for families to see their loved ones. But, and our visitation policies have changed in the ICU where we do have the ability to have two designated designated um, visitors at the bedside now at our right. facility, yeah. which is amazing. But for a long time, it was no one was allowed mm-hmm. just so we could protect our staff because we didn't know how this was going to go. Yeah. So that element, I think, had its own ramifications for our staff mm-hmm. um, and trying to deal with you know, even confused patients who couldn't have their family members at the bedside. Totally. It, that, that was huge and yeah. difficult and really changed the nature of our nursing. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah. Hmm. I, I know someone in acute care who um, talked about how the load changed as well, that like Um, you know, often on a shift, you would have a patient, maybe two that you are caring for. And and your, your role is really to just be present for that person Mm -hmm. in this very intense and scary time. And that going in during different points in the pandemic, um, with numbers being as high as they were in cases being as severe as they were, that suddenly the quality of care that feels like is being delivered feels not in alignment with why I got into the work. Like I'm now caring for four or five patients because that's the load right now. And that that isn't allowing me to offer the type of quality care that is within my valuing of people. Yeah. Well, and even we had, I mean, our, I have to say, I think our management, management team did an incredible job they really tried to like be supportive and there was emails that went out about you know when we surge and we get to these levels these are the things that you're going to need to drop in terms of patient care so that you can focus on what's important so mouth care every two hours that that might need to be every four hours turning patients that's a big thing. We really want to prevent bed sores. Turning patients might need to go by the wayside for a while because it's, you know, there's more important things to deal with because you're going to have an increased load of very sick people. That was awful. Like I, I think we provide exceptional care to people who absolutely cannot care for their bodily functions and needs and then we were being told, well, like some of that's going to just have to be put aside so that you can focus on what's important. Um, that, that was a really difficult piece, I think, for a lot of very A-type personality ICU nurses yes. <laughs> who that's, we care for you head to toe. And then now we're being told like, uh, sorry, you're going to be running a couple, you know, dialysis machines. You won't have time to do mouth care. Yeah. You know, and so, and even I think as an ICU nurse, we, we're very organized and we know how to plan out a day and we were getting redeployed staff from other areas to come and help us. So we were getting ortho nurses or um, nurses from Burns or from other areas, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. And they were coming to come and to kind of 
helps that load, Mm -hmm. but still I want to, I want to do those things myself. And so it was a real like reorganization of having to like let other people do the work that you usually do and not knowing if it was done to your own standard and having to let that go. That was, that's hard. (laughs) Totally. It's hard to reconcile it when, when the the act of caring is so fundamentally a component of why show up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In the midst of that though, I also feel like it's pretty fantastically amazing that that was verbalized from the top down, like that we recognize that the expectations need to change because instead of it being like us realizing on the front lines, oh darn, like we cannot manage all these pieces and then feeling like you're on the hook for still being able to to have that just be like a, we get that this isn't a thing right now. Um, and direction from the top. That's pretty fantastic. It was. And I think there was a lot of that in our, in our facility, just from that management team being like, Hey guys, we know this is going to be tough and we appreciate what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And these are the pieces that you're going to have to let go. And that's okay. Like it really was an allowance not to do substandard care, but to understand that things need to change because the work is going to become heavier. And so that was a really important part, I think, for our management to be able to say that to staff and then to try and get some of these extra supports in that maybe don't have critical care knowledge, but they could help turn a patient. They could help with those simple things. And that was, that was really important too. I think, especially during the surge. Yeah, for sure. So in this past year, recognizing so many of the shifts that have had to happen, what have been the pieces that have surprised you the most, both in terms of your work on the front lines, but also in terms of just being a human living in this pandemic? Yeah, I think the thing that I appreciated most was in the first wave, mm-hmm. I feel like people really supported healthcare workers. It yeah. was, you know, the thought that worldwide people were out banging pots and pans <laughs> as we drove to work. You know what I mean? Like totally. that to me was such an incredible outpouring of support and love and a recognition of how terrifying it was for us to head into those places. You know, I, I can't tell you how scary it was thinking, you know, I'm going into work, but what if I get this thing Mm -hmm. and looking at the images from like Italy and the UK and across Europe where nurses were dying And doctors were dying. And this thought that like, wow, I've never felt in danger going into work and putting myself in this position or my family in this position, that was really hard to get over. But then you had this whole societal push to support healthcare workers and they were proud and they were staying home, but we were going in and this whole idea of, of support and admiration for healthcare I was like, wow, like, not like, oh, we're rock stars. But for the first time, it felt like people were valuing healthcare workers over celebrities. And I thought that was such a great shift in thinking um, just for society as a whole to value something that was so valuable. 
And so that was something that really surprised me and I really appreciated, Mm -hmm. but I felt like that really shifted (laughs) when (laughs) people were fatigued from the pandemic. And then all of a sudden there was this shift that we weren't heroes anymore. And then the anti-mask rallies started and people were tired of dealing with the pandemic as a whole. And we weren't necessarily heroes anymore. People were just kind of done with it. Yeah, (laughs) totally. That was a really difficult time in the fall compared to the spring. Well, Um, I recognize that 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 shift is a a huge piece that led into the social media post that you wrote that has had quite a lot of attention Um, I think I actually first found out about you after seeing the global news article that was posted about your social media post. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I actually have a friend who is a nurse in Calgary, who I've interviewed on this show before, um, who I said, do you know her? (laughs) And she said, I think that I've got some mutual friends. And so she had encouraged me to try to look you up and hunt you down. Um, Yeah. So I'm curious, like having having experienced kind of this surprise of the overwhelming support on the front end, but then this like very disappointing shift, not just in like a leg of support, but like an active um, kind of aggressive anti-support piece, Um, right? What was it like for you as you wrote that that post and Mm -hmm. what's the response been to it? Yeah, so that was a really... It was such an interesting time because as surprised as I was and so elated about the support we received in the spring, that big shift towards anti-nurses, too much control, anti-mask, that whole shift really surprised me as well. And Mm -hmm. when, I mean, nurses are human beings too. We are going through this. We have families. We have kids that are in and out of school because of different cases of COVID. You know, we're human beings as well. And we're on social media. So to see this, I couldn't believe it, honestly, like the comments that were coming out, Mm. knowing how ignorant that was and how they were coming from a place of absolutely no experiential knowledge but feeling like they could, you know, have an opinion on what was happening in the hospital system blew my mind. Like mm-hmm. I, looking at the, I mean, you should never read the comments section, <laughs> what I've but the comments on some of these articles, you know, there was young people in Alberta dying from COVID and they would post a news article about it on Facebook or whatever. And then the comments underneath were like, this is a bunch of garbage. This isn't really happening. Fake news. You know, oh, I'm sure that person had a lot of, you know, other health issues. And I was disgusted. Like I was blown away. Some of the comments were, this is fake. Talk to the doctors and nurses. They're all bored. Hmm. And I would read that and then go get my scrubs on and Hmm. walk into that ICU that felt like it was a dumpster fire of people dying and suffering and families not being there and I it was so disheartening for me to read those things and then go put my scrubs on and walk in and so you know it 
that social media post, I had no idea was going to blow up like it did. Mm. I'm, I'm thankful that it did because I think it really showed that there were a lot of people who supported healthcare workers still. Mm -hmm. Um, it was just born out of pure frustration of reading this garbage and being like, you know what, (laughs) you can go ahead and make these comments and act like you're an expert on what's happening. Although you're doing it from your armchair in your living room, but you know what, when you come in and if you can't breathe, we will still be there for you because that is the nature and character of healthcare workers. That no matter what you say, who you are, it doesn't matter if you come in and you are covered in swastika tattoos. We won't agree with what you stand for or what you do, but we will still care for you because that's who we are. Like that, that was what that was completely about was just, you know, we are decent human beings who are trying to make a difference here. And no matter what ignorant comments you make, if you get COVID as much as you deny it, we will still take care of you. And the response from that, it was overwhelming. Honestly, I was just blown away because I was so frustrated at gross trolls on the internet posting Mm -hmm. all this stuff. And then the amount of how much that was shared, like, I think it was shared over 6,000 times. It went all through the States. I had people writing me personal messages saying how much they appreciated what we were doing, that Mm. they realized that we were walking into a war zone and that they appreciated that they got to stay home and we were still going in. Like it was, it was so gratifying to hear that people, people had our backs. It's just that the internet trolls are the ones who speak the loudest. And so that's, that's what we were hearing And that's what we were seeing, but that wasn't the general feeling of society that people still supported us. So I got the most incredible messages. I, when that went across global and I think it was in global BC, I had my cousins in BC, like contact me to say they saw me on the news. Yeah. And (laughs) I had someone in Newfoundland say they saw it on global. So I know it went coast to coast, which was amazing. Mm. And then I had a gentleman in BC contact me privately to say that his dad was in the ICU um, with COVID and that he had to, he had to drive through an anti-mask rally to go see his dad. And Mm. he sent me a couple messages that kind of just updated me on his dad's status. And then he ended up, they withdrew care and, and his dad passed away. And I just, the amount of human connection that I received from that of just people saying like, thank you for what you're doing. Oh, it was, it was incredible. Honestly, it really just brought me to tears. It's kind of amazing, right? Like it's like humanity needs reminders to see the good stuff and not just the shit. Totally. Right. And so like when we remind ourselves that like, oh yeah, there's still people who are still showing up every day for their 12 hour shift and putting themselves at risk and putting their families at risk. And, and I mean, we just kind of get lackadaisical about our awareness. Yeah. I think so too. Like the fact that my nine-year-old daughter would cry in the fall Mm -hmm. when COVID was raging and I was going into work on a night shift and she would just come up and say, mom, please don't go. 
please, please stay home. I'm so worried about you. The burden of that, of just having your nine-year-old bawling, asking you to stay and then going on social media and seeing these horrible people saying things that were so untrue. It was such a, like, it, it just made it more difficult. But then after that social media post, it made it easier for me to go in knowing Mm. that we had the backing of so many people who appreciated what we were doing that, yeah, they were told they had to work from home, but I was still walking in masking for a 12 hour shift, going in and out of rooms, wearing full PPE, sweating my butt off, you know, in these hot rooms. Totally. So uncomfortable, not eating because your patients are so sick Mm -hmm. and you don't want to leave the bedside. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's, yeah. Sometimes you just wish people could get a glimpse of what it is that we've done over the last 10 months. And I, I think a lot of people do know, but maybe not all the details. Yeah. So, I mean, to some extent, it, it feels like that social media post is kind of a part of your process. And, and we're having this conversation in the midst of a series that we've been doing on Behind the Line about how we process significant events and experiences Um, Mm -hmm. and, and specifically we've been trying to relate that to the pandemic just because it's very timely and obvious. Um, but really a lot of the skills we've been talking about have breadth that go beyond the pandemic specifically. Um, you said that after the social media post, it got easier, uh, because of the support that you were aware was there. It sounds like that's kind of a piece of what processing has meant for you is, is doing that in connection with people who really see and validate the work that you're doing. Yeah. I'm curious if there's other pieces for you that have been really helpful in terms of how you make sense of this story of what's happened this year and the impact that it's had for you. Yeah, it's, I think for anyone processing what the last 10, 11 months has yeah. been, I, th- I think we're going to be processing this for such a long, long time to come. Totally. Um, I, I don't know. I don't even know exactly how to answer that. I think it has made me realize, well, A, just how thankful I am for health and wellness. Although we, I mean, as an ICU nurse, I've always seen how quickly life can change. But um, I think that idea of people globally masking up, doing things public health orders, even if they don't really love it, they'll still Mm -hmm. do it in order to protect their neighbor. I I think that, you know, we've seen that in its worst form where people don't want to do that for other people. And then we've seen it in its best form where people are buying groceries for their elderly neighbors so that they don't have to go out. You know, I, I think it's, it's been this weird dichotomy of, you know, good versus evil and, and seeing the best of society and seeing the worst of society Mm -hmm. um for me I think a big part of just surviving this last year has been knowing you know when I need to take a break when I need to do the things that bring me joy um that has been a big part of coping with the pandemic is Mm -hmm. you know dialing into what are my mental health supports and what are the things that help me 
help me process this in a positive way and keep moving forward. Um, we've seen a lot of death in the last year. Yeah. We've seen, I have seen more substance abuse, intentional and unintentional overdoses. You know, um, for me, I need to come home to process that and go for a run. I need to, I need to do, um, what I do well, which is, you know, um, I think I mentioned to you that I started, a an online women's fitness group. Um, I've needed to, when I leave work, when I leave the ICU, I I have to focus on other things too. Mm -hmm. And doing an online fitness group that supports women, uh, doing fitness accountability. Our group is called sisters with blisters. Um, (laughs) it. (laughs) it, It is an amazing, uh, support where, I can go for a run. I can process all these things. I can get that physical activity. I can feel really um, alive mm-hmm. after seeing so much death and despair. <laughs> Those are the things that I need to do to cope with this pandemic and just with life in general. So yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's kind of how I've proceeded through the last year totally I actually think it it does um answer the question I think that um there's lots of actions and activities and skills that we do to cope and manage and part of what they offer us is this ability to be a person who's more than just one really hard thing Mm-hmm. Right. So like, if all I do is go to work and come home and sleep and go to work and come home and sleep, it's really hard to make sense of the story of all that's happening because it's, it's this very narrow perspective of me and the way that the work has impact for me. Mm-hmm. But when I am in this larger context of sisters with blisters and, yeah. um, and, you know, I know that you have other kind of interests and passions as well, that you do photography and that you and your husband are renovating a house. Like you guys have other pieces that kind of develop this more comprehensive perspective of who you are, but also what the world is like that the world yeah. is not just death, but it's also really yeah. happy wedding photography, exactly. right? <laughs> that there's more diversity to the experience and having that, I think helps keep things in context a little bit differently. Yeah. And even that social media post, like it comes out of this space of like frustration and disgust at the comments that you're seeing, but then it offers this platform for comments that are the total opposite that feels so supportive. Right. Yeah. And so again, it like creates this context. It just helps us tell the story in a bit more of a a well-rounded way. So instead of it just being the story about this terrible, awful thing that's killing everybody and it's all bad all the time, there's still the tension of, yes, it's awful. And yes, there's so much death and yes, it's very, very hard. And also there are these ways that good people are showing up in the midst of it and that those- good people are willing to sacrifice things themselves in an effort to make it just a teeny bit better. And holding those tensions is really important for how we make sense of who we are in this and how we're going to carry the impact of it on an ongoing, because you're right, it's going to be a long time that we're still continuing to figure out what this is meant for us. Yep. And I think even just like pre-pandemic, being an ICU nurse, 
um, I've seen a lot of horrible things, but what it's taught me is that there's also a lot of life to live. And yeah. so even, you know, before the pandemic, I, I really felt like this fitness group, my photography business, um, all these different facets of my life. I have to keep those going because ultimately we have to live. And you're right. If you just go to work, come home and just process and live in that space of being a nurse and caregiving for people when they're so ill, you're never experiencing the joy of what it is to be outside of the hospital and live. And so that's been a really important part for me through my whole career. And now, especially in the pandemic has been, how do we keep moving forward and how do we live? And, you know, at some point I could see me flipping from the illness side of nursing to more wellness side. I think, I don't know if I'm a lifer ICU. I mean, I say that, but I'll probably be there forever. <laughs> Love it. It's fair but, for that to be an open-ended question. It is right. And I, I have really tried to implement, especially in the last few years, focusing on wellness. And that's, mm -hmm. that's such an important piece because yes, there are horrible things happen mostly to the best people. Mm -hmm. um, and we see that and I can support them through that, through my work in the ICU, but I can't stay there because then my anxiety gets worse. Then my depression comes, then my, you know, struggles come. So I also need to flip when I leave there and I need to focus on wellness and life and living and, and running and feeling like my body can move. How many people I have nursed that are now new quadriplegics or paraplegics because of an accident. So mm -hmm. I need to leave and I need to live and be thankful that I can move my body and I can run and I can, you know what I mean? Like it's that, totally. it's that living piece that I feel that even new nurses out there, they need to grasp that it's, it's my biggest piece of advice. Whenever I'm talking to new nurses, old nurses is like, yeah. we need to find the things that bring us joy. And maybe you hate running. <laughs> maybe totally. It's not for everyone. Nightmare. It's not, but for me, it allows me to feel the joy of health and wellness. And that has been so good for my brain to, to function and work totally. properly. So I, I think that's what I'm so thankful that I had those things in place before the pandemic that we were doing, that I was running this group, Sisters with Blisters, before the pandemic and through the pandemic, because it was all online, mm -hmm. even though we weren't meeting up for races yeah. um, and doing 5k runs together, we could still support each other through just being on this group and, totally. and celebrating each other's victories and telling each other our struggles with trying to just like wrap our heads around getting a workout in um, that's helped me immensely through the pandemic is living and, yeah. and trying to encourage others to do it well. So yeah, I don't know what the future holds for me in terms of where our lives are headed. I mean, I have a lot of different things going on, mm -hmm. but I, that's who I am. That's how I survive and how I thrive is having all these different areas in my life. Totally there. It's so good. Cause I think one of the things I have talked about on this show a ton is that we have to be more than the work and the risk of 
um, of the work is that most of us who get into some version of first response and frontline work are people who have a genuine heart for caring about other humans, which is like super noble and lovely and whatever, but it's also really risky because we have this tendency to really highly value everybody else way ahead of ourselves and like so far ahead that we don't even show up on the list. Yeah. And that's really, really risky to our ability to be sustainable in it. Because if we don't have some of those other things to counterbalance it, we burn out super fast. Totally. Yeah, that is so true. I love that you have additional pieces. I love that you had them before the pandemic. I think one of the things that's been challenging for some people is that the things they might've had before the pandemic don't feel like options in the same way during right. the pandemic. So like, I mean, running outdoors is kind of one of those things that you're still forever allowed to do. Um, so it's awesome that that's remained an available access point in the midst of it, for sure. But other people have lost what brings them joy because they simply weren't able to do it anymore. Things were shut down. And totally. I think that is so, difficult. yeah. Yeah, it's been super hard because I think it's a time where it's already more intense. And so intense times are not when we are best at being creative. Mm -hmm. um, it's yeah. when we're best at just surviving. Um, and yeah. so when, when we're having to come up with like new ways of doing old things that we used to like, or coming up with totally new things, because none of my things are even options anymore, or I'm so newly aware of my burnout that I'm starting this from scratch and I have no idea what I even like. Like exactly. it's just, it's a hard time to cultivate yeah. some of those things because it's more intense. So much. Yeah. 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 I'm glad. I'm thankful for you that some of those pieces were there and aligned to continue happening. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, as we're kind of moving towards wrapping up, I know I mentioned to you before that uh, on Behind the Line, we're heading into a new series starting next week on leadership. <laughs> And while I have you, I just kind of wondered if there's anything that you would want to speak to around your experiences of leadership within the public health system, areas of concern you've experienced, or areas you think that need improvement to better support those on the front lines. Yeah, I think for me personally, the leadership that our management team has shown through this crisis I think has been vital, honestly, mm -hmm. for us to survive as a staff. Um, so I think that has been exceptional. I think what worries me the most in terms of leadership is just um, maybe that upper governmental letter level, provincial mm -hmm. level, where it seems like healthcare costs too much money. Mm -hmm. And that, that really worries me because there was some pretty big cuts coming to nurses before the pandemic hit. Yeah. And then that couldn't happen because right. we were so needed. <laughs> and yes. there was such a wave of public support that I don't think that they could have gotten away with cutting us. So then that kind of went on the back burner. But my concern for the future is um, appropriate staffing for leaders, leaders in our provinces to really see the value of public health care. I think that is a, a huge ongoing concern as I have elderly family members that are going to need, need the public health care system more as time yeah. goes on. 
as my kids get older and maybe get into sports where they're going to need public health care because they break a bone, those sorts of things, that really concerns me for the future of just not the value of quality nursing staff, um, support staff, that sort of thing. And this whole idea that it just kind of costs us too much money. Um, And so they're going to make cuts. That is a massive concern for me when it comes to leadership. That's what I wish our leaders would really kind of understand or maybe experience what it is to be in the healthcare system. Totally. I feel like that gets maybe forgotten about or not experienced by those leaders. So that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that public support kind of favors, favors public health care. Yeah. After we've gone through this entire process and they can see how valuable we are. Well, and for sure, the staffing piece is just such a huge issue. I think like the um, kind of trickle out effect that happens when we ignore sufficient staffing numbers, because, you know, one of the pieces of feedback I get a lot from people who are working particularly in hospital settings, but for sure in a lot of other um, helping professions as well is this piece of like, okay, so I'm having a hard day or I feel like I need to take a mental health day, but I can't without sinking my team because there's no one else. Totally. So I can't care for my own wellness appropriately because we're (laughs) understaffed. And if I do, it just means that I'm putting more weight on people who are just as burnt out as I am. Yeah. And they're not going to take the day off either because they feel like they're going to let everybody else down too. Yeah. And so it creates this really hostile environment, I think, where we lose really good people because they just get so fried out of that setup Yep. that, that it feels like, how is this actually worth it? Like it comes to that point. And so then we're like burning out people who are really, really great at what they do and not giving them the appropriate support to be able to do it long-term and then wondering why we have such a high turnover rate. Exactly. And then ultimately cutting, like that's what concerns me is like, it's, it's bad enough now. And then in the future, because budgetary concerns or whatever, then all of a sudden you're going to cut nurses from the hospital system or from the community And that just feels so dangerous as we move forward. And we have so many baby boomers in our society that are aging. And, you know, it just seems really counterintuitive to what is good for society. Maybe it's good for the numbers, like budgetary wise, but it just is not good ultimately for society. And that's where I wish there was some leadership around that kind of importance and quality that we need going forward. Yeah. Well, and it's just like, it's a way more complex issue. And I think the budgetary concern, like I get that that's someone's job to worry about. I'm really thankful it's not mine, Yes, but, you know, like I wouldn't want it in a million years, but also like it, it sometimes fails to see the bigger the picture, yeah. right? Well, and like, I, I think I had a similar conversation with um, Ryan, who was the RCMP officer we interviewed several weeks yeah. ago. Um, I've had similar conversations with paramedics. We have a paramedic crisis here in BC that's been aired on CBC a number of times now that we have too many cars down and crazy wait times and whatever. And it's a similar challenge where from a financial perspective, keep this small, 
But then when you have, you know, a group of people who aren't doing well and they go off on stress leave or what, like it sinks the ship. Totally. Um, and it's just so challenging. And then, and then you have those people in upper management or systems-based levels kind of looking at it and going like, well, it's unacceptable that we have this many ambulances down. How did this happen? Yeah. And you're like, well, it's, it's like a direct result of this thing that you've created. Yeah. Um, but you choose not to see that. And that's, yep. I think the piece that's just unendingly frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And br- Like it just feels so broken, right? When it's like the numbers go ahead of the human element and the human cost and that it just doesn't feel right. So totally, totally. Well, on that happy note, uh, (laughs) if you could, if you could kind of say just as a wrap up piece though, um, and it can be kind of connected to the leadership piece if that feels helpful, but it doesn't have to be, it can kind of be connected to the processing piece we were talking about earlier. If there was something that you could say to our audience who you know are first responders and frontline workers from diverse areas of helping profession to kind of let them know what you have found most helpful, what would that be? Yeah, if I could speak to anyone who is on the front line and whether that is someone at a grocery store or that is someone like our our CMP or our paramedics, I well, first, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for showing up and doing your job. I, mm-hmm. I respect you and admire you so much for being a part of the solution. Uh, but I just want to really encourage those people. It's something that's so important to me is just find what brings you joy. Find what it is on your off days that can give you a sense of life and joy and peace. I, I, I've seen so much suffering in the last year and for years, but I also have found so much joy in just the everyday life of encouraging people, um, seeing people do good things, doing good things for others. You know, I'm still buying groceries for my 77 year old aunt, who's like my best friend. You know, Mm. I, I think do do what it is that can bring you joy and make you feel like a whole human being because I think our jobs take so much from us so that would be my only thing is just oh please find what find what brings you joy yeah that live your life piece yeah totally thanks for that yeah thank you so much Courtney for your time today and I mean for your bravery in addressing many of the issues that you've addressed in a very truth telling and real way with your post back in November. I think that like was amazing. Um, as well as for your continued commitment to showing up in the work in the midst of this pandemic. I know that's not easy and it hasn't gotten any easier. Um, and last but not least for joining me and for being willing to share with our listeners who are also out there and working and, talking about how to be in this and how to make sense of their work within this pandemic. I really just genuinely appreciate your time and your insight um, and your willingness to kind of step out and be a voice in this. Yeah, you're so welcome. And thank you for highlighting this. I just think, again, this is such important work that you're even doing. And if this can touch one person to make them feel like they're not alone in this, Uh, or that some of the feelings that they're feeling, you know, that they're not isolated, 
I think that is such important work. It's something that we need to continue doing and just breaking down stigmas about mental health and how to care for yourself and that you're not selfish. You're, you're okay. You're doing great, you know? So this is super important work. Yeah. Yeah. We often talk about how that self-care piece is the best gift we can give everybody else in our lives because it totally what lets us do any of this well, right? Like we can do a lot of this stuff, but we don't necessarily do it as our best selves. No. And you don't want to just survive, right? Like they're totally, yeah. yeah. Like we're working so hard to help everyone else be okay. And we get to have the same. Yeah. And go for a run. (laughs) Amen. If you can. Uh, I love it or do a silly dance in your living room something like that I love it yeah all right well thank you so so much Courtney it's been so good to have you yes thank you all right thanks everyone for sticking with us I know that this one's a bit longer than what we usually do but I hope that you'll agree that it's been worth it show Courtney some love by commenting on our social media with what you loved most or found helpful as you process your own story of having a front row seat in this pandemic. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast and to our email list and to follow me on Facebook and Instagram. You can find all of the links in the show notes. And I'd like to end today by sharing from one other frontline workers post that was shared with me and I really highly valued. I think you will too. Mike from Halifax shared this post that he had posted early in the pandemic. Quote, anyone who really knows me knows that I love Spider-Man. I have loved Spider-Man since I was a kid. I wanted to be a superhero when I was six years old, and that dream never really left me, which probably explains why I chose pediatrics. Some of my patients call me Spider-Mike. This all started in my early career when a young patient and I shared our love for the web-slinger, And he told me that Spider-Man was the only real superhero because, quote, Peter Parker was just a regular guy just like us who happened to be bitten by a radioactive spider. Made sense to me. In times like these, many people call healthcare workers heroes. Some celebrate us by making noise in the streets every night, giving us discounts at stores, and even thanking us for our service in the street. At the face of it, that makes sense. People need heroes because heroes save us when there is trouble. Heroes overcome the villains. Heroes give us hope. At the start of the pandemic, I thought that maybe this was my Spider-Man moment. However, as I reflect on the past number of weeks, I know that none of us working in healthcare are heroes. Sure, we wear masks, face shields, gloves, and the PPE equivalent of a cape, but in truth, we're a lot more like Peter Parker than we are Spider-Man. Peter Parker is just a person, just a regular guy, in the words of my patient, who is just trying to figure it all out. Behind his mask, he has suffered loss and experienced victory. He's had doubts and sometimes wants to retreat. He feels every hit in every battle, noting in the movie Spider-Man Far From Home that even though he is Spider-Man, it still hurts. But he keeps showing up. He is scared that who he is puts his family and friends in danger. He longs for normalcy and there is no superhero PPE to protect his heart and mind. We aren't heroes. We are Peter Parkers. Behind the mask, we are just trying to figure it all out and do our best, and it hurts, but we will keep showing up. One of the great Spider-Man quotes comes from Uncle Ben, who says, With great power comes great responsibility. 
all of us have the power and indeed the great responsibility to flatten the curve. Please do your part, follow the guidance of our health leaders, and know that we will be there when you need us. And then he used the hashtag, not today, COVID. I don't think I could say it any better. So until next time, you guys, stay safe.